The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Dinner is Served Edition. I cannot wait for Laura Bennett to explain what that title means. I regret this very much. You regret your presence on the show already. It is Wednesday, November 14th, 2018 on today's show. Can you ever forgive me, stars Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel, the legendary literary forger. The part is a serious, dramatic turn for McCarthy, and just uh, FYI, she uh, absolutely nails it. Um, And then Big Mouth is an animated adult cartoon, very adult, really, really, really fucking adult cartoon on Netflix. Uh, it's about the puberty, uh, about puberty, about the lurid phantasms unleashed on us uh, in early adolescence. And finally, a legend has left us. Stanley, the wizard behind Marvel Comics, is dead at the age of 95. We discuss a giant's legacy with uh, the slate Marvelologist? Marvelologist? Marvelologist. <laughs> Marvel. All right, well, let's move on. Um, anyway, with Jamel Bowie, we're so psyched to have him back on the show. But first, we're really psyched to have Laura Bennett in, uh, Features Director of Slate, filling in for Julia Turner. Hey. Hi, I'm Laura. so excited to be here. It's uh, always a, a really fun time when you're on the show, a really fun turn. And of course, Dana Stevens is uh, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. All right, should we dig right in? Please. Okay. Lee Israel was by one measure a very successful writer. She published widely, uh, highly regarded biographies, but she fell out of favor for a personality that was nine parts vinegar, one to one part sweetness and light, and having uh, somewhat esoteric tastes in book subjects, and she fell on hard times by the early 90s, which is pretty much where the movie Can You Ever Forgive Me begins. It takes us through her scheme to make rent and cat food money by forging letters from some of her uh, heroes and heroines, uh, jazz age wits like Noel Coward and Dorothy Parker. She then sells them on some kind of secondary market for bucks. Anyway, she discovers in doing it her talents as a ventriloquist, her own immense uh, charms and wit rise to the surface in, in constructing these letters, even as they represent a fraud of growing and quite alarming proportions. Uh, why don't we listen to a clip? I think this uh, one line here was particularly clever, don't you think? It's wonderful. I love his writing. And Dorothy Parker as well. Caustic wit, you know? Caustic wit is my religion. I can't carry it off. You certainly can. Doesn't help too much in the relationship department. I'm sure that's not true. Okay, should we settle up? Yeah. I know. Cash. This has my number, well, the number of the store. If you're ever in the neighborhood and, you know, want to get a drink or a coffee sometime. Sounds good. I'd like that. All right, well, Dana, I mean, the, I think probably you'd agree the most notable thing about the movie is McCarthy's uh, mostly non-comedic, straight dramatic performance. But uh, before we get there, a couple things. The movie's directed by, uh, is her name Marielle Marielle Heller. Heller. Marielle Heller. Tell us a little bit about who she is before you tell us what you thought of the movie. I mean, we don't know that much yet about who she is because this is only her second movie, which is part of why this is so exciting. She's a young American director. Her first movie was The Diary of a Teenage Girl. And uh, and it was it definitely seemed like, here's the marking of a young new female director who's interesting to follow. And, and I'm actually surprised and delighted that this was her next project because, you know, she's got big names all of a sudden and uh, not just Mer- Melissa McCarthy, but um, 
Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant, who we'll get to his character, who oh, I think so is good. maybe the best supporting character I've seen on a screen this year. I just absolutely love Richard E. Grant. And this is kind of him going back to his with nail glory of just there's no one who can play kind of a degenerate, of a charming degenerate as well as Richard E. Grant. And that's exactly what he plays. So true. Uh, but this has so much going for it on so many levels. It's this exciting female director. It's also co-written by Nicole Holoff Center, one of my beloved favorite female directors and, and a hero to or directors. Our show, period. I think, yeah. Uh, and and Jeff Witte, who's a playwright who wrote Avenue Q. He wrote the uh, the puppet puppet oh sex God, musical, which is a, a great combo. So you can sort of hear it in that scene, but it's just it's very literate. It's very snappily written. I mean, to me, this is just like this is a, a Dana Christmas present of a movie. <laughs> it's kind of got everything. It's got this great glimpse into the rare documents trade in Manhattan in the early 90s and uh and it's just it's it's got everything and it's also got this quote unlikable female character who is unlikable in a different way than the kind of prestige cable yeah. right i mean yeah. we can get into how but I there's totally there's agree. something about her character who is just cranky uh, misanthropic. I mean, I don't even know how you describe Leah Le Israel. She she idolizes Dorothy Parker, who's one of the people she specializes in forging, and she is kind of a Dorothy Parker. And there's there's an implication, which at the end of the movie I think becomes kind of concrete, that that this is this this forging of literary documents in which she briefly excels, or it has this brief period of success, um, is is kind of the height of her writing life as well. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up being a movie as well about about what it is to to try to write and what imitation is and uh, yeah. it's just it's really got a lot of levels going on in the script and is funny as hell yeah it has the, the movie has the courage of her unlikability it, it it backs up her unlikability with uh with with strong choices to not soften it and not make you fall in love with her i thought i mean there's nothing manic pixie uh you know i mean not or 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 dark there's not like dark glamour it's like she's fucking unhappy and sometimes her company is a real chore Laura it was a Dana Christmas present you're taking the bow off you're unwrapping it you're unwrapping it and you pull it out uh, did you love it as much so I uh, I really liked the movie I as a Melissa McCarthy performance in particular I loved it and obviously part of what was so appealing about it is that it just couldn't feel more different from the loudmouth kind of full body swagger of the other roles she's most famous for not really including her other dramatic roles in this mental catalog because those loom so much large, so much less large culturally. But you know, Spy and Heat and Bridesmaids and even Sean Spicer on SNL. I, one of her defining traits as a performer is this total physical fearlessness. I think also of I remember when she hosted SNL a few years ago when she did this bit where she threw herself across the stage in these uh, teetering high heels, and that seems emblematic to me in just how her most memorable roles have demonstrated this total comfort in and ownership of her body. And obviously, this is a fine-boned drama and not a comedy with pratfalls, but it's also a movie about someone who fundamentally hates herself in some key way yeah. and is deeply uncomfortable in her own skin. And whereas she so often plays these women who project this like bulldozer airtight confidence to see her inhabit this defensiveness and fragility and repression and to be reminded also of how verbally inventive and agile she is as an actress um was just really amazing yeah she's playing small in some ways i mean it's 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 it, it, she's a deeply fucked up heavily defended antisocial person and yet what results is is i mean charming isn't the right word i mean i do find her dreadful like I, the, the movie succeeds dana for me in part because i find her genuinely dreadful and richard e grant plays a a, a very um a galvanic role in her life and in the movie 
but he's also a scumbag, and she perceives him as a scumbag. The movie has the courage of admitting that he's actually a self-serving, uh, you know, kind of low, in some sense, low life. And and then his with nail charms get to play with and against that, and expand it, and grow it, and deepen it. But anyway, um, as she's ventriloquizing the voices of you know her admired dead, like uh, Dorothy Parker and Noel Coward, she discovers she's uncannily capable of imitating them and sort of being them and her own wit and her own powers of self-expression are finally able to um, you know, emerge out of what's kind of withheld them in the past, which is her own you know, kind of monumental self-hatred. And that story and that drama to me was totally compelling. I definitely agree. I loved the extent to which this movie is at its core about how, you know, revitalizing and even uh, life affirming it can be to take pride in your work and to feel really good at what you do. And as her own confidence in her work began to build and the movie began to persuade us that she was good at it more and more, that for me was when the heart of the movie started to take shape. But I, um, you know, I Another thing I really liked about the movie that for me maybe was the heart of it even more was something that Dana mentioned in her lovely review for Slate, where you wrote about the internalized self-hatred of early 90s queer culture as one of the movie's main targets. And that uh, rang so true to me. And I generally loved the arc of these two challenging, complicated people slowly kind of pulling each other out of their respective uh, pits of loneliness and denial and despair. Right. They meet in a gay bar, right? They meet in this this grungy gay bar where they each habitually go to sit and drink separately and be depressed. And that's where this unlikely and in many ways not that heartwarming <laughs> friendship springs up. So there's this great paradoxical layer, right, where you're right that it's about learning to take pride in your work. And it's also about how friendship can pull you out of depression. But the work she's doing is lying, right, and breaking yeah. the law. And the friendship is based on, you know, essentially pleasure in breaking the law and mutual exploitation. So there's a real complexity to this movie that doesn't offer any easy solutions. As to the thing about queer culture, I think maybe my single favorite thing about this script is how the the glimpse that we get into that queer culture is completely incorporated into the warp and weft of the world that they live in, right? There's no scene, there's not even a scene where we sort of establish she is gay, right? You sort yeah. of slowly figure it out from you know, hints about her past relationships and that that scene that we heard where she kind of flirts with a, a bookstore owner, but it's never laid out there. And uh, and there's just there's not any moment where we're sort of shown a protest in the street in order to establish, you know, what what the position of gay yeah. people and the culture was at the time. We just pick it up from all the social cues and it's really wonderfully done. Yeah, I t- totally agree. So, uh, Dana, we're we're probably going to wrap now, but um, surely this is going to get some consideration. Do you think she'll get uh, a best actress? I really hope so. I don't know if this is the kind of movie that will please Oscar voters or not. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's a little, might be a little bit too small and too literary and too nasty. But if anyone does get attention for it, it will probably be her. For me, honestly, my heart would glow if Richard E. Grant would get some mm-hmm. recognition for this. Yeah. It's, it's really one of the best supporting characters I've seen this year so far. And it's just, it's impossible to come out of this without just beaming with love for him as an actor. All right, the movie is Can You Ever Forgive Me, uh, starring Melissa McCarthy. We basically really dug it. She's great. Uh, anything that Nicole Hall of Center touches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right, moving on. Before we go any further, uh, this is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our business, and uh, it's my turn this week, so here we go. 
First, if you're in the New York area, there's an upcoming live show you should know about. Employee of the Month will be live in Brooklyn on December 1st. This show is hosted by Katie Lazarus, one of Slate's newest podcasters, and her house band for a live late-night talk show. Each month, Katie honors and interviews an amazing lineup of people about the work they do. For more information and tickets, go to slate.com slash live. And in Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about Thank You Next, of course, the Ariana Grande breakup uh, anthem. And uh, we thought we'd just throw it around the horn, talk about our own breakup anthems, our own, uh, the songs that we listened to or played a lot uh, after breakups, after uh, being or being on the receiving end of the dump truck. So um, yeah, check it out. Um, And to hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, there's only one way to do it. You got to sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program. It's a great way to support us. For 35 bucks for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gap Fest and all of your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support us, if you'd like to support us here at the Culture Gap Fest, we would love it. Trust me. Go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, onward. If only you could go through puberty after you'd gone through puberty. (laughs) We'd all be so much better off because let's be honest, it's a fucking nightmare and unleashing of hormones on the bodies and imaginations of, I don't know, what what is it now, third graders? Probably, I don't know, what, sixth, seventh graders. uh, Thrusts a lot of people inward into a phantasmagoria of lust, confusion, and shame. Big Mouth is an animated series uh, about exactly this. It's a... created and voiced by Nick Kroll, among others. And it was called by Inku Kang, the TV, ATV writer for Slate, sweet, progressive, and breathtakingly filthy. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we listen to a clip? As puberty begins, hormones are released and the sexual organs begin to change. The uterus is the center of female reproductive activity. The uterus? I thought girls had vaginas. I thought that too. But I guess they don't. Maybe vagina is like slang? Did someone say vagina? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Not now. Vagina! <laughs> Go away. You are not real. You're just some hormone monster my brain created. If I'm not real, then how come I'm sending blood to your sweet penis right now? Oh, oh come the on. The ovaries release the egg. Then travel down the fallopian tube. Fallopian. What a savory <laughs> word. Describes exactly what it is, you know what I mean? Okay, I should tell you, this is school, and we need boundaries. If you want me to go away, you know what you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Bennett, I, I got a big old hot potato right here in my lap, and I'm tossing it right over to you. But first, I will say, voiced by Kroll... Jenny Slate, Maya Rudolph, Jordan Peele, many others. It was very funny, but you really wanted to do this, didn't you? I feel a mixture of guilt and uh, accomplishment that I have convinced you two dignified gabfesters to talk about uh, this show on uh, on Culture Gabfest. Because, yes, I was definitely the one crusading to make this happen. I have gotten hooked on Big Mouth recently, and I am just so smitten with this ridiculous show. I will say, first of all, that I am... Generally not big on animated shows or gross-out, shock-jockey, body comedy generally, but this one just totally charmed and hooked me. Um, And I think, well, there are a few reasons. One is, one of my favorite reviews of the show is Jack Hamilton in Slate, and he wrote that this show could have been something much more kind of blunt force and bro-y, but instead it achieves, and these are his words, a sort of middle school magical realism. 
And that, I think, is really true. It somehow channels both the winky obscenity of comedians reflecting on their tween years and the kind of wide-eyed guilelessness of actual tweenhood. Mm -hmm. You feel like you're sitting inside the topsy-turvy fever dream of a very imaginative 13-year-old where sex is terrifying and baffling and all-consuming. And it's at once filthy and raucous and uh, balls to the wall, if you will. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) But also it's totally aware of the messages it's putting out. There's a kind of control in its argument making, even while it seems on the surface like this careening uh, batshit animated romp about 13-year-old boners. And I think a great example of this is the Planned Parenthood episode, which is season two, Um so this has run for two seasons, and I have watched all of season one and some of season two, but the Planet Parenthood app caused a lot of controversy when it came out. Um, it is ingeniously structured and so funny. The basic concept is it's kind of, I mean, it emerged out of a meeting that Kroll had with reps from Planned Parenthood, where Planned Parenthood was like, you know, money is nice, but what really is meaningful to us is pop cultural representations of what we do. Mm. And so... Just like what an interesting parameter for this, yeah. uh, for Kroll to work within. And so it is, it really is um, a, it managed to at once explain the full value of Planned Parenthood and present an unsentimental, honest portrait of abortion, which is really not easy to do in an animated comedy and kind of hilariously equal opportunity skewers both the bad humo- hormone fueled decision making of girls and boys in their tween years. So there is a cancer screening that happens a la like Star Trek or style or uh, space exploration. There's a sequence where a young where a teenage girl chooses contraceptive options as an episode of The Bachelorette. And she ultimately chooses the pullout method, much to her mother's chagrin. it, the whole thing feels really radically progressive and feminist without ever feeling didactic. Somehow it manages to be a corrective while not feeling like a corrective at all yeah. um, and being so funny the whole way through. Yeah, I agree. So, Dana, I, very, very, very critical question to you know to start off with here. Should my new ringtone be Laura Bennett saying <laughs> balls to the wall <laughs> or a 13-year-old boner? <laughs> you can alternate the two. I'll give you a second to think about it, but... F- First, uh, uh, Laura loves it. Um, do you? I mean, I, I'm stunned that I like it as much as, as I do. <laughs> I, I think as I've established before when we talk about cartoon shows, which also I'm generally not drawn to, is that I really resist the what I think of as the adult swim sensibility, right? Like the, the shock jock, gross out, you know, generally guy humor driven kind of show. And this show does manage not to be that. It's, it's equal opportunity gross out, right? Mm-hmm. And in a way it alternates, not perfectly evenly, but it alternates between the world of the boys, these two boys who are best friends who are voiced by, I believe they're voiced by John Mulaney and Fred Armisen, right? No, John Mulaney and Nick Kroll. Oh, okay, Nick, Nick Kroll. Kroll so many of so the So Nick Kroll the is both the hormone monster and the boy driven by the hormone monster. And a monster. billion other. He's Coach Steve, also that like sad old lech. <laughs> All right, so but wait, anyway, so, so the, boy, the boy side, and then the girl side, right. where you've got uh, the the nerdy character voiced by Jenny Slate, who's great, Missy, and uh, Jesse Klein voices a character named Jesse. So you've got the girl world of like, is my period going to start right? And the like the girl worries, and then the sort of boy boner side that we we heard <laughs> in the clip, and uh, and it does balance those extremely well. I haven't gotten to the Planned Parenthood episode yet, but it seems like something that this show could take on, and so I respect that. 
I think the writing is really good. I think the strongest thing in this show is the voice work. The voice work is incredible. Like the the, the thought that these actors put into, in fact, it's really hard to tell who's voicing what because they're truly doing voices, right? So like Jenny Slate is unrecognizable in that character that she does. She creates this kind of nasal, nerdy voice for her that's really great. Maya Rudolph as the female hormone monster, Connie, is oh, she's sensational. She's so good. So, so she's she sort amazing. of turns it into this like bluesy growl that then turns into this like banshee shriek because just her voice is all <laughs> over the place and she really gets at sort of the id, the id nature of, of this hormone monster. Um, so yeah, I was constantly cracking up just at people's vocal choices and, uh, and at, at, at some of the writing. I'm not quite sure. This is, this is a very mom-like thing to say, but I'm a little bit alarmed that Netflix hasn't done more to make this show harder to watch for young kids. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that scared me the most about this show is that when I put on my Netflix to watch it, I saw that a few episodes had already been watched, which meant that my 12 and a half year old watched this <laughs> oh unbelievably God. raunchy show, which uh -huh. it's not that the subject, it's not about mean, bad things. It is ultimately about, you know, kids learning to kind of live with their bodies and be nice to each other. But along the way, it has so many filthy jokes, like it's packed with raunch every single second. And uh, and I asked my daughter about it, and you know, not in a judgy way. I just said, I've got to watch Big Mouth for the Gap Fest. And I noticed that you watched some. What did you think of it? And she was not that fond of it. She said that her friend told her to watch it because it was his favorite show. And, uh, and that she started watching it. And she said, <laughs> She said she agreed it was incredibly dirty. She said, I didn't really get a lot of the jokes. Oh, <laughs> and then she heart. also said, she said, I don't think even grownups talk that way. <laughs> and I assured her that, in fact, adulthood is not just nonstop filthy humor every single second. But, yeah, the fact that it looks appealingly cartoony and it just pops right up when you look on Netflix and doesn't have any, I don't know what they would do, but like have some kind of warning or bury it under adult shows or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it just seems like there must be a lot of kids that are saying, hey, a new cartoon on Netflix. And right. then they're watching like, I mean, I'm not going to get it. It's not even friendly for this podcast to get into like how dirty this show is. Uh, let me give you the possible counterpoint to that, which is that having now had two girls go through puberty uh, at a co-ed school, uh, and I, I hate to over-gender this, but the boys are on the internet. They are on a virtually unrestricted or unrestricted internet, and they're finding a lot of this language in contexts that are utterly demeaning and especially demeaning to their girl classmates, to women in general, which they then bring into the classroom and use to, to essentially degrade or humiliate or whatever their, their female classmates, that you can use this language in a completely different way, in a way maybe even defang it, but bring it into the context of human kindness, which is the general tone and, and, and message of the show, which is understanding and understanding that everyone's going through this, but also a progressive politics and a feminist politics, especially when it comes to reproductive rights and, uh, and, and uh, gender norms and equality. I think that's really, really healthy because they're finding this language anyway. And to find it here is so much, much better. I think that is a great point. And Nick Kroll, has, he's even said that he kind of wants 13-year-olds to watch it. Yeah. I, I'm not the parent of a 13-year-old. And yet I've surprised myself by feeling like I kind of want tweens to watch this show for the exact reasons that you laid out. I would take, for example, the uh, head push episode. I don't know if you guys saw that. But 
there is one episode where there is a sort of there's a high school theater kid party that these two that these hapless sort of, you know, preteens somehow find themselves at and a bunch of hilarious adventures and misadventures ensue. But there's this one scene that is very funny, but it's also somewhat fundamentally earnest where there's a teen girl and she's like making out with her uh, douchebag theater kid crush and he starts to push her head down and that becomes a kind of a coinage, like, oh, the head push. He's known as a head pusher. And for me, something like that, which was a, when I was growing up, the idea of the head push was a total joke that didn't even register as a sexual infraction. It was just something kind of worth eye rolling over to see that articulated in the language of consent in this totally self-aware and hilarious way that, again, doesn't play as a corrective, even though it is one. It That made me think, you know, if all of this that this sort of very subtle messaging wrapped up in this boisterous and profane package seemed really novel and effective to yeah. me. Counterpoint? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see the head push. That sounds interesting. I think that this show does have those moments, but there's a lot coming at you really fast with this show, right? It has that Simpsons density of jokes where there's visual jokes and verbal jokes and like stuff being thrown at you every second. And there's some little throwaways that I would argue send kind of the opposite message about consent and have some sort of disturbing things for a middle schooler to see. And I'm not shaking my finger here. I'm just saying I'm not sure that this show is for that age. If you're going to be just taking everything in and saying, OK, you know, I've got to sort all this out for myself. And one example is a moment that happens sometime in the first season where there's going to be a slumber party. I think the episode's called Slumber Party, and there's a girl slumber party and a boy slumber party, and we cut in between. And one of the many disgusting things that happens at the boy slumber party is that they're trying to get a hold of this Sylvester Stallone porn tape, <laughs> VHS tape that they're going to watch. And then there's all this, you know, these machinations about how they're going to get it and watch it. And then there's this moment that one of the kids shows up. I think it's the middle school kid shows up with the tape and says, I got the tape. And then he says something like, and all I had to do was show my dick to the guy at the video store. I don't know. That was one of the moments <laughs> where I thought I kind of hope my 12 and a half year old didn't see this episode. Right. And I mean, in the in the context of an adult show, I can see how there can be a moment that nasty. But if it really is true that this is aimed mm-hmm. for kids, that seems like an area. It to is watch. not aimed for kids. Just to be clear, it's definitely for adults. But I think, you know, maybe it's just a Kennedy marketing move on Kroll's part to be like, hey, I think kids should watch it too. However, I did. I definitely thought about that. I thought specifically about, you know, what uh, the fact that you have a daughter who's around this age and, you know, I wondered um, what it would be like if she'd watch it. And I'm both thrilled and scandalized to know that she has watched it already. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So uh, yay or nay, a general rule, if Nick Kroll is associated with it, is fucking funny and you should watch it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's totally funny. And I th- I think just for the voiceover work alone, there's there's basically a great comedian, a truly great comedian in every single voice role. So it's yeah. it's kind of worth it for that alone. Should I really quickly say the dinner served joke? <laughs> Can we avoid it? Right, to so the real, the, title. And the other real question is is it okay how easy it is to find a, a podcast featuring Laura Bennett on the internet or do we need to like filter and warning and V chip it? But Laura, you wanted to give this show a certain title. Why? Uh, well, I don't know if it's fair to say I wanted to give the show a <laughs> I mean, title. We I don't were know. Thinking about what are our favorite quotes from this episode, and I would say, this is, if you know me and my sense of humor, you know that I don't, I don't, this kind of humor makes me squeamish generally, and for some reason it's so out of character that I love, I love this so much, but there are so many absurdist, gross, inventive details in this show, like the hormone monsters, um... <laughs> <laughs> this is so worth it. So the, okay, so the hormone <laughs> monsters 
uh, genitals are detached from his body and follow him kind of like a flock of ducklings. And they they kind of crawl along behind him like inchworms. It's there. It's so strange, but so funny. Um, there's a pillow that gets pregnant at one point. And I just wanted to flag once again how incredible the characters of the hormone monsters are. There are these horny, profane Sherpas who alternately protect their little wards and egg them on into these horrible decisions. But there is one moment that made me laugh so much when a few of the characters are talking about how guys generally um, solicit oral sex from women. And the hormone monster says, with just like the total emphatic, confident delivery, typical of a Kroll or Mulaney bit, you arch your back and you thrust out your hips and you say, dinner is served. <laughs> and I was so scandalized, but I laughed so much. <laughs> you know, I've, in the 10 years of this show, I've never said this, but Laura Bennett, you are hired. Oh, my God. You're hired. You're fucking hired. That was <laughs> really funny. All right. It's uh, Big Mouth. It's Nick Kroll. It's Jenny Slade. It's a bunch of other people. Check it out. Tell us what you thought about it. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Moving on. Stan Lee was the man who created or helped create or helped conjure up Spider-Man, Iron Man, Black Panther, Captain America, the Hulk. The list goes on and on and on and on. Clearly, he was behind a comic book revolution in the 60s. And then, of course, subsequently, a Hollywood revolution in the aughts, which we're in the midst of, for better and worse. Anyway, he died this past week at the age of 95. I have a theory of the dyad on this show. Um, it has uh, it, may, it may be facile, but it's also largely untrue. Um, <laughs> and it, uh, uh, it essentially says that you know there there are certain artists. Uh, Dana, you call me out as a bullshitter every time I say it, but it's kind of like Lennon. There's Lennon and McCartney, and you're either Lennon or McCartney. There's Tolstoy and uh, uh, Dostoevsky. You're one or the other. There's Roth and Updike, and I realize that it originated in one primal thing which is DC or Marvel. And if you told me DC when I was 10 or 12 years old, you were dead to me going forward. Uh, joining us to talk about the legacy of Stanley is someone who really knows about uh, comic books, Jamel Bowie, chief political correspondent for Slate Magazine and, of course, a contributor to CBS News. Jamel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Stan Lee took this format, which was in some ways, it was associated with, if I'm not mistaken, two things principally. One was super simplistic, highly moralized tales of good and evil, or like Kefauver Commission uh, inspiring, um, lurid, uh, totally fringy kind of um, gross out um, uh, horror comics. He took it and he made it something new in the 1960s. He gave it uh, and I'm sort of half plagiarizing from a couple of obits, but he gave a doubt, darkness, neurosis, uh, and a countercultural vibe, and even something of a social conscience. Uh, Jamel, welcome to the show. Tell us a, bit, a little bit about the legacy of Stanley and what he means to you and comics. Man, the legacy of Stanley—it's—it's it's sort of hard to really capture, right? Because superheroes are now an, an ubiquitous part of our pop culture, and the the modern template for superheroes, or at least the the melodrama, the sort of interiority, um, that is Stan Lee. It's, I think, in recent years been somewhat uh, popular 
to sort of attribute all of Marvel's early genius to Jack Kirby, and much of it is rightfully attributed to Jack Kirby, who was um, did much of the art in those early Marvel comics, him and Steve Ditko. And Jack Kirby more or less created the modern um, visual language for superhero comic books. But Stanley did the scripting. Uh, Stanley wrote the dialogue, and he gave those uh, those early comics and. Things that stand out for me in particular are the the first sort of fifty issues of sort of the Fantastic Four, which is kind of the original um, uh, Marvel property. Uh, he gave he created that feel of of uh, intimacy of the sense that these are ordinary people um, in extraordinary circumstances, uh, and you know that that like I said at the start is sort of where our pop culture is that those, those characters those actual characters are uh, everywhere. Um, and that style of writing for the genre kind of took over. I mean, even you know, for all the Marvel and DC stuff, DC also bears the stamp of Stan Lee's approach to writing superheroes. Um, and so that's, I think that's his legacy. Uh, that and that and the phrase with great power comes great responsibility, which mm-hmm. I was saying to my wife last night. It's kind of wild that that's like a Stanley original because it feels like it's just existed in the language for so long. Yeah, it should be um, like Lord Acton or something. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> or it's from right, a presidential it, speech or something. It captures something that is just simply true. Um, and it's it's legitimately crazy that its origins are kind of in a, a throwaway box in the first issue of Spider-Man or or um, Amazing Fantasy, which is what the title was. So that's, I think, what Stanley represents for the culture. For me in particular, I read lots of comic books as a kid. Um, uh, my imagination was shaped by comic books, which meant it was shaped by Stan Lee and the uh, extent to which... Uh, I, I myself uh, was able to sort of express that part of my personality, um, sort of uh, uh, get a feel for melodrama, come to appreciate it even. Um, I think I can, I, I owe a lot to Stan Lee. I have friends for whom uh, I think the connection is much more personal for biographical reasons. A couple Good friends of mine are themselves, uh, you know, Jewish kids from New York City. Um, so Stanley means a lot in like a very particular way. Um, but it's just, you know, a nerdy, somewhat awkward uh, black kid growing up in the Virginia suburbs uh, in Hampton Roads. Um, I uh, was able to relate um, to the characters, to to the the people Stanley, um, the scenario Stanley invented, to the dialogue. So. That, you know, that for me is is where it is. Well, so Jamel is a guy who's not just old, but like not fucking around old, like really old. <laughs> I, uh, I read these things when they first came out in the 60s and the sensibility was found nowhere else, right? Now it's ubiquitous. Now it, it sort of hovers and occasionally feels like it squats on all of us. And it's it, this degree of, you know, ironizing, uh, humor and then neurotic kind of self-doubt has kind of found its way everywhere. But it was really only in those, as, well, as I recall in the 60s, only in those comic books. And additionally, you knew who Stan Lee was if you read them. Stan Lee was ubiquitous within the comic books. He was a character in them. Maybe talk a little bit about why he's so well-known, not just for the achievement, but for this persona that he he inserted into the material itself. 
Right. I mean, arguably, Stan Lee's most famous creation is the character of Stan Lee. Um, that between in the comics themselves, um, little asides, uh, little comments would always uh, he would write them in and he would say, you know, from Stan Lee, usually with some sort of like phrase or, or greeting or salutation. And then he uh, uh, answered letters and wrote responses for readers. And it was in the pages of the kind of the letters of Marvel Comics, which are always at the, the final two pages or so of each edition, that kind of the Stanley personality emerged. And it was this bombastic, uh, sort of gregarious, um, always kind of looking to make a sale in a way, uh, personality that I think caught sort of the imaginations of readers. And that that is the Stanley that we know. That's the Stanley that makes the cameos in these movies. That's the Stanley who, you know, uh, who would, you know, declare Excelsior uh, at the end of every comic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that is, I mean, that is the persona. And um, I don't think you can separate Marvel's success, at least in penetrating the larger culture, from Stan Lee's just, like, ability to... Um, create this compelling character himself and have it kind of uh, saturate um, uh, at least like culture for kids. Um, And then those kids in turn become adults who are themselves making culture. Uh, Jamel, I'm curious also what you make of the sort of longstanding cloud that hung over him in terms of, you know, who deserved the credit? Was it, was it Stanley as much as he said it was? Was it Ditko? Was it Kirby? I mean, does that, what does that do to his legacy for you? And do you think that too much was made of that whole, uh, of that, you know, controversy? Or um, I'm, I'm just curious for your thoughts. I think Stan Lee took a lot of credit. Uh, some of that credit he should not have taken. Um, it's sort of well known that Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko left Marvel on sour terms with Lee and with management. Lee often sided with management, um, thus uh, creating tense and, and sort of... Uh, uncomfortable situations between him and other writers and and members of the Marvel stable. Um, I think that acknowledging that is important. Um, uh, Acknowledging the extent to which, again, Lee was scripting, right? So like the, the visuals of Marvel comics owe themselves, I think almost entirely to, to Kirby and Ditko Um, that uh, the character creation um, was, Stanley played a part, but so did Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko significantly. Uh, but I don't think that we should understand this as Lee having sort of like a minor say or a minor part in all of this. He he had a significant and substantial part in kind of developing the Marvel mythology. He just shouldn't get sole credit. And I would I'm always inclined to give him basically like half credit that this was this was a collaborative deal. Um, they were all working together and working closely together. Uh, this this isn't sort of a you know a uh, Bob Kane and Bill Finger situation with Batman, where Bill Finger really kind of created Batman and Bob Kane took all the credit. Um, Stanley was very much a part of the creative process. Jamel, since you talked about the cameos that he made in the comics and his his presence as a character himself in the Marvel universe, I'm just I'm curious about. I mean, of course, as a film critic, I mainly experienced this universe through the movies. I didn't read comics as a kid. To me, Marvel is the you know however many it is 18 movies that have been made over the last 
couple decades uh, by Marvel. And uh, in which Stan Lee also, as you as you said, has a physical presence. He almost always or maybe always did he Hitchcock style do a cameo in every single one. And at any rate, there's always that moment that you wait for the audience to gasp and applaud because Stan Lee is, you know, behind a counter or something in a Marvel movie. But to what degree do you see? I mean, there's so many different kinds of Marvel movies that have been made now, right? There's comic ones, there's epic ones and tragic ones. And I want to know how you see his legacy, you know, appearing in the movies, being betrayed by the movies. Do you feel like you can <laughs> you can sense what he wanted or what he would have created on paper in the movies? And do you feel like that kind of waxes and wanes as the as the oeuvre grows bigger? You know, I think so far the Marvel movies are remarkably true to the vision of those early Marvel comics. Um, you know, everything from like. Black Panther is just high melodrama, right? And that that is straight from the pages of um, of those early comics. Uh, likewise, with properties like Captain America, like Iron Man, that that combination of humor, of melodrama, of of relatability, all you can see in those early comics. The the sort of high fantasy kind of cosmic exploration of Guardians of the Galaxy, of the upcoming Captain Marvel, of Infinity War. Um, all of that, too, is something Stanley contributed to. I'd say it's much more Jack Kirby than Stanley, but uh, his his touch is there as well. So, I mean, I, I actually think, and for me, it's, it's sort of the, the striking thing about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that as much as the, the first installments, like Iron Man, um, Iron Man 2, uh, even Thor to a certain extent, were sort of borrowing from kind of later innovations in the Marvel universe, the, the ultimate Marvel series in the late 90s and early 2000s. As the series has progressed, it's gotten sort of more and more comic booky, and in getting more and more comic booky, it's getting closer and closer to. 1961, 1962, 1963, yeah. the Marvel that was um, the, the original Marvel. It, it's sort of, a, it, it is it is striking. It's like the opposite trajectory of what's happening with Warner Brothers and the DC properties, where those are really, really, even, even the good ones like Wonder Woman are very much moving away, have moved away from the, um, the camp of the early comics. Mm. It's you know it's funny. I mean, this is as unscientific as a statement could possibly be. But but maybe one could trace the influence of Stanley's sensibility as it saturated those comic books, as Joss Whedon was reading them back in the sixties, probably early seventies. As it then finds its way into Buffy and gets a foothold in the popular culture, and it ends up coming full circle, and he you know brings it back to the Avengers franchise. I mean, this is to put it in perspective. And this has got to be some of the most successful. IP in the history of the world, right? I mean, you know, because it's not just one thing like Harry Potter. It's this stable of characters that's quite uh, uh, populous and and diverse. Jamel, do we give Stan Lee some credit for being woke Stan Lee before maybe uh, others <laughs> were? I mean, it's, it's being mentioned in obituaries that there was a social conscience to his uh, comic books. Uh, would you uh, credit that as well? I would. I mean, there are limitations to that, right? Sort of um, uh, Black Panther's first appearance is in Fantastic Four, 
like number 20 something number 30 something like an early a relatively early fantastic four and it's some of the dialogue is kind of cringeworthy it's um mm. it's uh by modern standards it's not great uh but i i'd say stan lee had he was at least aware that this stuff was important. Um, he was sort of like resolutely um, against racism, against sort of like common bigotry. And I think, I think it matters. I mean, I think it matters by, uh, for the fact that it could certainly have been much worse. Um, and it, I think it matters for the present when you have kind of organized movements against diversity and inclusion in comic books um, to point to one of the people who created um, uh, the tone or had a huge impact on the tone of modern comic books, um, look back at him and say, no, this is very much part of his legacy as well, that diversifying characters, um, uh, speaking out against injustice is all part of what Stanley and Marvel kind of gave to the world of popular culture. Mm-hmm. All right, Jamel, before we go, all-time favorite Marvel title go. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've mentioned it several times, so I feel like I've already given away, but Fantastic Four. I feel like it's a lame choice. People don't like the Fantastic Four because they are kind of hokey, but I, I think the Fantastic Four encapsulates everything that's great about Marvel and both the original uh, Lee Kirby run. Um, uh, John Byrne did a very influential run in the early 80s, and then most recently uh, Matt Fraction uh, did a run on Fantastic Four. And I think, I think, and Jonathan Hickman as well, is the most recent run. Uh, Jonathan Hickman had sort of a run that really called back to Lee and Kirby. And I think, you know, out of the Fantastic Four, you get sort of high drama, you get cosmic exploration, you get super heroics, you get the melodrama of family life, um, you get sort of squabbling and, and, and anger and jealousy and all of these things which were, even if you read those original comics today, are striking. It's striking to read that our uh, picturesque hero, Reed Richards, is like plagued with self-doubt about the role he had in creating this mess, that he thinks of him and his family and his friends in this situation. It's almost kind of monstrous. Um, It's striking to see the thing who is this very sort of like downbeat character who has this great strength, who's popular, but kind of hates himself because of what he is. Um, it's striking to read them argue with each other over things both, you know, deep and important, like their relationships, and also about money. There's a whole, like, uh, storyline in those early comics where Reed Richards runs out of money, and they have to, like, find a way to keep everything going, and it involves sort of selling their rights to their characters for movies. It's very strange. Um, but it's it, it was also kind of ordinary and mundane in an exciting way, and I think that still carries over to the best Fantastic Four stories. So... Um, Fantastic Four for me. You'll never that, that that will always be my favorite series. Doctor Doom is the best supervillain. Um, yeah, Jamel. Um, thank you for coming on on short notice. This was great, as we knew it would be. Oh, no problem. All right. Well, now's the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Okay. Na 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 so first of all, I'm going to do a little esprit d'escalier moment and have an amendation to one of my uh, endorsements from last week, which comes from many listeners who wrote in to tell me, okay, you remember, Steve, my complaint that the Orson Welles documentary, the documentary on Netflix about the other side of the wind, which is called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, falls far short in terms of showing us how this this document was actually put together, right? It tells us a lot about the process of shooting the Orson Welles movie, but it essentially almost stops 
you know, during this long, long period of however many years it was, a couple decades that we've been waiting for this movie to come out. And uh, and a bunch of people wrote to tell me that documentary actually exists. There's a documentary that supplements that exact information, which Netflix, with its traditional shooting itself in the foot policy, has buried completely. But as you're starting up the other side of the wind on Netflix, if you go to trailers and more, you can find a 40-minute documentary that covers precisely that period. It's a little bit less artfully done than the Morgan Neville one, but it provides the nugget of info that I was railing about not getting, which is essentially, who were the people behind this decision? How did they turn 100 hours into this two-hour movie, et cetera, et cetera? And I don't have it in front of me right now, so I can't remember what it's called. But if you go to the trailer section, it'll be the only little 40-minute documentary that's there. So that's one. But because that's kind of a half endorsement, can I do one more? Please. (laughs) So this is one of my endorsing a person segments when you just find a writer who writes really well about something and you you should follow this person, literally follow him on Twitter and follow the writing that he does. And that is David J. Roth, who's a writer for Deadspin, a site that I rarely visit because I'm not a sports person. But of course, they also have writing about all kinds of other things, including politics. And uh, at some point, probably last year, I came across this some piece that David J. Roth had written about Donald Trump that that had that brought something new to the way that I, I thought about him and his relationship to the public, et cetera, his kind of the nature of his particular celebrity. And I mean, I think all of us now are so incredibly sick of everything about Donald Trump, right? Looking at him, thinking about him, listening to him, reading about him. I don't care about his motives. I don't want to know about his past. You know, I just want him to go away since day one. My primary thought about Donald Trump is just please go away and get out of my fucking face, right? But David J. Roth is somebody who somehow manages to bring some different kind of light to this horrible darkness that we're all confronted with every day. And his latest piece that I want to recommend, in addition to just following him on Twitter and seeing what he does, is called This Is All Donald Trump Has Left. And it's sort of a a reading of exactly where we are right now in our uh, relationship with this figure who (laughs) controls all of our lives to, to our despair. So, um, and uh, I, I actually tweeted this quote yesterday. I'm going to I'm going to read one paragraph from it just so you, you can kind of see like why I feel like he has a different way of talking about something that it's almost we're so numb to right now. The culture has been inching further and further into Trump's gilded funhouse for years now. And you surely do not need me to tell you that it fucking sucks in there. But we are by now all the way in. Trump is nearly as ubiquitous in the culture as he has always believed he should be. The one deeply held belief that has been evident throughout his whole faithless disgrace of a life is people should be talking about Donald Trump more on television, and he has just about seen that part through. All Trump wants, all he has ever wanted, is to be able to keep doing and taking and saying whatever he wants whenever he wants. He ran for president for this reason and this reason only. I don't know. I mean, it's dark. (laughs) It's dark, but it's, it's somehow, to me, a balm to read the writing of David J. Roth on Trump. So that's my second endorsement. That's very cool. Uh, Laura, what do you have? This is sort of a strange one. I know we uh, that midterms feel like a distant memory now, but when I was thinking what I really wanted to endorse this week, I thought of Steve Kornacki. I don't know if you watched MSNBC coverage of the midterms, but I just the joy of watching this guy in his press khakis coolly navigate his giant insubordinate iPad and swoop from one county to the next and riff in these extraordinarily specific and numerical uh, ways every time he's zoomed in on some new district. The guy is just so calming to watch. He is a real breath of fresh air. You feel like... <laughs> I finally saw... No, I went to a... Fr- I, now I know who you're talking about. He, he's... Yes, he's, he's amazing. He's He's got yeah. the rolled up sleeves yes. and all his khakis <laughs> and the glasses. And I feel like you sit through Brian Williams spouting 
nonsense as he as he was genially on uh, election night and Chris Matthews overheating just so you can spend some time in the presence of this sort of hyper articulate precision minded ro- precision minded robot uh and I just loved the guy hey, he's so good he's the one yeah. at the at the screen extrapolating yeah. mm-hmm. from like three people voted in one right. district and therefore he iterates out all the falling dominoes and he's the number crunching yeah. guy exactly right? yeah. the Chuck Todd except you can stand him that's right <laughs> That's a good tagline. Tectonic, except you can stand him. But he also, his grasp of American geography is really impressive. So he can just, like, he, the way he navigates that sort of malfunctioning map was so good. I just thought the guy did such a good job that I wanted to flag him as a character. Uh, Jen Cheney also wrote a really funny piece in uh, for Vulture, in a, a little ode to Kornacki um, that I recommend also because it's very, uh, very charming. Uh, magnificent. Okay, so Dana, I'm going to take uh, alleviate you of all the shame of a one and a half endorsements because I'm going to do you a favor and double it because <laughs> I've got three. Um, but I'll try to be quick. The um, first is that I have tried my best over the ten years we've done this show not to log roll uh, and. Uh, push my friends on the audience. But uh, lo and behold, over the last 10 years, a friend of mine has gone from being a really good journalist to being, I think, a truly special one. Um, but uh, his name is Robert Worth. Uh, he and I have known each other since college. He's a contributing writer to the Times Magazine. He's the kind of guy who takes a year and learns Arabic, uh, which he did, uh, and has become one of the best, if not the best, by far, long-form reporters on the Middle East. His a piece on the Siege of Aleppo, was not only the best thing I've read about the Middle East in forever, it was one of the best pieces of journalism and literary. It's deeply, deeply reported, and it has a literary value in and of itself. Uh, But his most recent piece is on Yemen and the uh, military, social, moral, and humanitarian disaster unfolding there, a deep history of who all the players are and where its intractability comes from, married to, uh, it can only be said, like a moral imagination by which you use literary language purposefully with an attempt to really understand what suffering is, how it's happening, who is causing it. Uh, people should really, re- I know it, I know it. when you look at it, you think, I want to be the kind of person who will read that, who will eat my broccoli and read a long form piece about the Middle East. Fuck it, you got to read it. It is so unbelievably well written and reported. So it's Robert F. Worth and his piece on Yemen. Uh, very, very quickly, I just saw the, um, I'm going to mispronounce his first name, the Delacroix, Eugene, Eugene Delacroix exhibit at the Met. It's up through January 6th. If you can make it to New York, if you're in New York between now and January 6th, Delacroix is the great painter of the early part of the 19th century, French romantic, uh, kind of post-age of Napoleon, a bridge figure to modern art, um, an incredibly traditional painter in one sense, an incredibly modern and exp- expressionist painter in another. It is a monumental. His achievement was monumental. The hanging is monumental. The work is so fucking good. And then finally, um, you know how you used to like back when you lived in Manhattan and you this was before you were born probably, but you didn't go to Brooklyn. It was just something about crossing that Rubicon. Well, now it's transferred to upstate. You don't cross the Hudson to go to the east side of the Hudson if you live on the west side of it. Well, I finally did it. There's this thing called Gracie's Luncheonette in Catskill, New York. is so fucking good. It's really good. These hipsters who had a definitive food truck upstate found this old luncheonette for sale on the other side of the river, but we'll let it pass. And it's it's really worth finding and going to Gracie's Luncheonette. It is one of the most exquisite uh, brunches 
combining high and low. It's no brow. It's like beautiful no brow <laughs> cuisine. And um, uh, it's town and gown. It's really, really, really well done. Gracie's Lunch Net. Laura, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for, uh, I mean, I appreciate that you allowed me to force you to watch uh, Big Mouth on Netflix. If not for that, I never would have discovered that my daughter was being corrupted by it. So you're welcome for that knowledge. Yeah, and you work some deep blue, though, when you get going. That's that's fun. Uh, And Dana, of course, (laughs) as always, a pleasure. As always. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We also have a Twitter feed. It's true. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Laura Bennett, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Hold up. 